What's stopping you, you, you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? Why do Catholics worship Mary? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? Where is purgatory in the Bible? I think the Pope has too much authority. What's stopping you? You are called to communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Do you have a question about the Catholic faith? You're looking around trying to get the uh, the correct answer for that question, but so far that correct answer has eluded you? Well, you are in luck. We are here for you. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening outside of North America, and we have a lot of listeners all over the world, the fa- special phone number for you is 1 and then 205 205- 271-2985. If you are uh, watching us on TV today, the best way for you to contact the show is uh, via email. The address is ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Jeff Burson handles social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming there, audio and video, right now. Just put your question in the comments box, if you would, and then uh, Jeff will see that. He'll send it to us here in the studio, and hopefully we can answer your question on today's program. Again, the phone number, 833-288-EWTN. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Andrews. Tom, how are you today? Very well. How are you, sir? I'm doing decent. Thank you. You told me before we got on the air you were a little bit sleepy. I'm a little bit sleepy. You think I that's a, a weather change thing? No, it was a not sleeping last night change. That'll do it. That'll do it. That'll do it. Here's an interesting uh, question we got from Colin, who says, My Protestant cousin said that Christ did not establish the church on St. Peter, but rather established the church on himself. What can I say in response? Uh, it's not what he said. It's not what he said. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus said, Thou art Peter, and on this rock I'll, I'll, I will build my church. Yeah. And the, the, the grammar of the thing is fairly evident, right? But, but I would add to that... That you know the different gospels have have complementary accounts of Jesus's relationship with Peter that are not identical, and so for example, um, in uh, in the Gospel of Luke, Christ says to Peter, um, he gives him the charge of strengthening the brethren. In Saint John's Gospel, he gives him the charge of um, of, uh, of feeding the sheep. Of course, Mark represents Peter as the first apostle to be called and one in close intimacy with Christ. So each gospel, in its own different way, establishes a particular relationship between Christ and Peter with Christ making a specific commission uniquely to Peter. And the account of that in Matthew is the one where we get the famous phrase, on this rock I will build my church. Okay. Well, there you go. And Colin, thank you so much for your question. Here's a uh, question from Eric watching us on YouTube. Eric says, I often hear you say the sacrifice of the Mass is the most effective means to attain sanctity. Is there anything in Scripture that would support it being more effective than the sacraments? Yes, thank you. I appreciate the question. So, 
uh, first of all, let's let's clarify what we mean because I'm I'm quoting Pope Pius the the twelfth here, who made that claim in his encyclical okay. Mediator Dei that the sacrifice of the mass was the most effective way of obtaining sanctity. Now, if you take that to mean well, just showing up at mass will guarantee your holiness. That that's the wrong way to take it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and the Pope actually elaborates in his encyclical. He says we can we can think about sacrifice in two ways. We can talk about the exterior rite itself, the the physical gestures and the words of the mass, but we can also talk about the interior self-offering that is to accompany them. The interior oblation he he means. And while the rite itself is objectively sacrificial, he says the chief part by far is the interior act. St. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12 that to offer our bodies as living sacrifices is our spiritual act of worship. Um, when Christ uh, invites us into relationship, what he says is you must become my disciples and take up your cross and follow me. The path of Christian life is... Uh, the imitation of the character and the actions of Christ culminating in his own self-offering on the cross at Calvary. Mm. That's what sanctity means. And so if the proper disposition, the proper attitude for approaching the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass is to seek to recapitulate within ourselves the own uh, Jesus' own self-offering that is manifested for us there upon the altar, that in that way, that's, that there's b- biblical text there for you, but th- that in that way the Mass is is sanctifying, and of course we receive Christ Himself in Holy Communion. But, but not it's, it's not sanctifying just in virtue of having attended the ritual. Okay, and uh, Eric, thank you so much for your question via YouTube. Called to Communion here on EWTN. Uh, we have two lines open right now at eight three three two eight eight EWTN. That's eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Jeff sent us an email. Recently, a priest told me that it is not okay for Roman Catholics to attend Eastern Rite Catholic churches. Is this true? That is false. It is acceptable for Roman Catholics to attend Eastern Rite Catholic churches. So it's not a problem. You can you can you can go to Mass on Sunday at your Byzantine Catholic church. You can go well. Not, they don't call it Mass. They call it the Divine Liturgy. Uh-huh. Satisfy your obligation. Receive Christ in Holy Communion. Yeah, that's absolutely fine. So that's incorrect. Okay. Glad to clear that up. Uh, Jeff, thanks for your email. Here's one now from Oscar. A Catholic man and woman who were married outside of the Catholic Church now want to come back and participate in the Catholic Church. What are the steps to do this? Yeah, provided that neither one of them has a previous marriage that would be in need of annulment, uh, all they need to do is have their marriage convalidated. That's it in the church. Yeah, they just have just just have just go to the priest and recite, recite their vows in front of the priest, and uh, and they'll have a valid marriage, and then they can they can fully participate. And they obviously, would need to go to confession to confess any grave faults. Uh, you know, like say disobeying the church's canonical teaching on marriage might There's be one that. you would mention. But yeah, very good. Wow, great. And uh, Oscar, thank you so much for your email. Glad we could uh, tackle four emails at the head of the show. That's fantastic. If you would like to send us an email for a future show, here's the address, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. We try to do uh, at least a couple of emails at the beginning of each of our shows, and then once a month or so, we'll dip into the mailbag and clear out a whole bunch of emails. Sometimes we'll uh, use those longer emails. We'll 
We'll hold on to those for the mailbag programs when we have time to stretch out just a little bit. Again, the address, ctc at ewtn.com. In a moment, we're going to get to the phones and talk with Jean in uh, Mississippi, also Norman in Madisonville, Kentucky. Donald is in central New Jersey. Marty is in Cleveland. We have one line open right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion with Dr. David Andrews here on EWTN. Stay with us. Call to communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin today with Jean, a first-time caller from Mississippi, listening on the great Catholic community radio. Jean, what's on your mind today? Good afternoon, Dr. Anders. Thank you for taking my call. Hi. I want to ask you two things. First, can Catholics go to communion twice in one day? And the second question would be, uh, where in the Bible is it that our Blessed Mother is uh, immaculately conceived? Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the questions. So the first one, uh, the answer to the first question is yes, you can receive communion twice in a day uh, with with one qualification, and that is the second communion must take place within the context of a Mass where you participate in the Mass. Right, meaning you have to actually go to Mass and sit through the Mass. So if you've if you've gone to communion in the morning, for example, and received Holy Communion, yeah. um, uh, you shouldn't receive communion outside of the context of Mass a second time that day. Right, but okay. the, but the reverse is the other way around. Well, anyway, the second communion always has to be within the context of a Mass. I'll put okay. it that way. Very okay. good. Um, where is it in Scripture that our Blessed Mother was immaculately conceived? Well. You, you know, the way Catholic doctrine works is we, we don't necessarily have to prove every Catholic doctrine from the Bible. There are many things that we know from sacred tradition apart from Scripture, uh, and there are many doctrines that are implied by sacred Scripture without being explicitly stated. And so when you bring the implications of the Bible together with sacred tradition and the teaching office of the Church, you can have certainty about those doctrines. And uh, the, the Immaculate Conception would fall into that category. So the, the, the sort of hints to the doctrine um, in sacred Scripture, but the, but the full thing, really, you have to develop it within the context of sacred tradition. Um, so... Mary is granted a singular privilege, a singular dignity, granted to no other human being on the planet, uh, namely that she is uh, the mother of God, and on account of which all generations will call her blessed. Right? So that's nobody else on the planet can say that they're the mother of God. Mary, however, we can say that about her. And um, because of her willing acceptance of this divine plan, all the church fathers found in Mary a kind of type of uh, of Eve. They saw our first mother was, you know, given an opportunity, and she said no, and the human race was wrecked because of the fall of Adam and Eve. Um, the human race is saved through the obedience of Christ, um, and instrumentally through the obedience of Mary, because her her willing acceptance of the divine plan is not it's not incidental to the divine plan. It's part of the part of the system that the Lord set up to bring salvation to the world. So we can literally say that although it was the death of Christ that saves us, Mary's yes, her her cooperation is not an insignificant part of that. Um, and because of that parallelism between Christ and Adam, the fathers of the church saw a parallelism between, between Eve and the Blessed Mother. 
Now, Eve, of course, was our, our mother naturally. She gives birth to our human nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mary is the mother of the church, the Mary of those who believe in, the, in Christ according to their spiritual rebirth, right? Jesus says to Nicodemus, man has to be born again. And Nicodemus says, well, how can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb? And Christ says, that's not the kind of birth I'm talking about. I'm talking about being born in water in the Spirit. So when the book of Revelation, chapter 12, refers to the Blessed Mother as the mother of all those who believe in Jesus, we're talking about a spiritual generation here. Now, what what takes place in that spiritual regeneration? Well, it's the infusion of sanctifying grace into our souls. And so even as uh, Eve was sort of the, the... it was through her parturition that our that our uh, fallen human nature comes into being. Uh, through the spiritual parturition of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the reality of grace can flow into our souls. And so there's a kind of logic. There's a kind of there's a kind of um, uh, parallelism between the fall of the human race in Adam and its redemption through the ministry of Christ and the cooperation of Mary for which the Immaculate Conception begins to emerge as a kind of very very fitting in that parallel, Eve's fall, Mary's redemption, you see, in a view of her tremendous dignity of being the mother of God, this dignity of being immaculately conceived. And then you consider the, the reflection of this on the fathers of the Church is that they, they can't conceive, never did conceive, of Mary ever having had any actual sin. And so, well, how do you do that? How do you actually live a life without any actual sin? Well, only if you are confirmed in grace, which is the dignity granted to her, her conception. And, uh, Jean, we thank you so much for your call, and that is uh, Call to Communion here on EWTN. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Let's go to Dallas now and talk with Helen, listening uh, on the great Guadalupe Radio, AM uh, uh, 910 there in Dallas. Helen, what's on your mind today? Hello. My question is in regard to something that I heard from a priest about being receiving the Eucharist and not truly believing that that is the body of Christ, and that will be a sin that if I receive it, and I do not believe 100%. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, I personally, I don't find the priest's counsel to be helpful, um, because he he... He hasn't really defined his terms, and it leaves to the kind of uh, crisis of conscience that you're expressing. So mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's helpful. Here's here's a here's a parallel case uh, that I think is illuminating. Mother Teresa of Calcutta, Saint Mother Teresa of Calcutta, is regarded by many as <clears throat> one of the greatest saints, if not the greatest saint of the 20th century. Most of us would conclude with the Church that she was imminent in sanctity. Uh, she had heroic charity. Uh, her life was a picture of Catholic piety, mm-hmm. and if you wanted to find someone to model your life on, you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody better mother, mother, than Mother Teresa, which is why the Church canonized her. But if you know something about Mother Teresa's interior life, uh, and we know, we know this in particular from her published writings that came out after her death, particularly writings to her spiritual director, um, not only did Mother Teresa have doubts about the sacraments, she was strongly tempted to atheism to the belief that there is no God, or that if there is a God, he didn't particularly care for Mother Teresa. And that she bore this as a tremendous cross. Mm. It was an enormous source of suffering in her life. Um, Here's another saint 
uh, canonized by the church, not only a canonized saint, but a doctor of the church. That would be Therese of Lisieux. And St. Therese, in her story of a soul, wrestled with the same things that Mother Teresa wrestled with and, and, and other things as well. And she, she went through an extended period of her life where she said that the thought of heaven and redemption and souls was a torture to her and not a comfort, and that she couldn't bring herself to believe it in, in so many words. Now, the, let's not stop with the saints. Let's go to the words of Holy Scripture. In the Psalms, particularly Psalm 88, this is an inspired writing. The, the sacred writer is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and expresses the temptation to atheism. He says, my life is falling apart. Uh, all my friends have abandoned me. I've called for help and God is absent. My one companion is darkness. Amen. My point is that, uh, that Newman put it this way. He said, a thousand difficulties do not make a doubt. Uh, faith is not an emotional response. And faith is consistent with uh, tremendous difficulties, whether they be emotional or intellectual, in the act of faith, witnessed by some of these great figures from Christian history. Mm -hmm. But did Mother Teresa have faith? Well, she got up every morning and put on her habit and put one foot in front of another, prayed her office, instructed the sisters, gathered up the poor from the streets, showed them the charity of Christ, taught them the love of Christ, uh, and she, she, she was her act of faith. Even though in her interior life she felt a tremendous, tremendous sense of loss and darkness. Uh, to have faith is not an emotional response. St. Thomas says it is to think with assent. And uh, if you are willing to say the creed, which we do at every Mass, mm -hmm. to affirm that what the Church teaches is true, um, and to put one foot in front of another and live a sacramental form of life in obedience to her teaching, um, then it, that's faith. That's yeah. faith. The, the Church doesn't ask more of you than that. It doesn't ask you to have perfect clarity. It doesn't ask, ask you to have uh, total assurance and comfort doesn't ask you to have a particular kind of affective response to the articles of faith. Um, it's enough that you say that you believe and you do the things that Catholics do, and your intent is to follow uh, uh, the teaching of Christ and the teaching of the Church and to live a faithful Catholic life. Helen, is that helpful for you? Absolutely. That's um, an amazing answer, and I feel that the Holy Spirit has enlightened. It, it's game changer. Thank you so much. You are most welcome. Thank you. Thank you for your call. It's called to Communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Perry now. Perry is a first-time caller from uh, Wyoming, listening on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. Perry, what's on your mind today, sir? I'd like to be a Catholic, but there's so much work to do it. I don't know if my mind can <laughs> remember it all. I'd, oh. love to be, I'd love to be a Catholic. Wow, Perry, thank you. I really appreciate the question. Well, fortunately, um, there's actually not that much you have to do to be a Catholic. I mean, uh, uh, my, uh, my infant son, who made it into the church about 15 minutes before I did, the day I got confirmed, he got baptized earlier, right? Um, all he had to do was breathe, <laughs> right? And he made it in. And for that matter, when I finally was confirmed, I was a non-Catholic who became a Catholic, you know what I had to say? I had to say, I believe everything the Catholic Church declares to be revealed by God. 
Totally. That's an implicit mm-hmm. faith in the teaching of the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to enumerate every, every Catholic doctrine and expound it with, with Scripture proofs. I just had to say I believe what the Church teaches. You didn't have to write an essay? I didn't have to write an essay, yeah. What a relief. And, uh, you know, so the Church does ask that, that candidates and catechumens, potential converts, receive instruction. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, there are exceptions to that. Most of the time they ask that they receive instruction. They don't insist that you understand it all. Right, yeah. and just that you this you make an effort to to learn something about the essentials of the faith, um, and uh, 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 but uh, you know if you're a non-Catholic and you base your faith on the Bible, most non-Catholic Protestants, for example, that I've known would say, well, yeah, I, I believe everything the Bible teaches, and you'll say, okay, let's hear it. What's everything the Bible teaches? <laughs> You'd be like, oh, I couldn't possibly tell you everything the Bible teaches. It's a big fat book. Exactly, exactly. Same. It's the same attitude. Right? Mm-hmm. Do I have the Catechism of the Catholic Church memorized? No. Have I read every word of every church father? No. Um, you know, uh, that's not what's necessary. The teaching is there to help illumine your life. You've got a lifetime to explore the teaching. Sure. But so you're in good shape. Perry, be not afraid. Thank you so much for your call. We hope that's helpful for you. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Donald now in central New Jersey, listening on the great domestic church media. Uh, Donald, what's on your mind today, sir? Well, hi, Dr. Anders. Um, Actually, I have two things to talk about. I'll try to be as quick as I can. Uh, In the Gospels, Jesus says somewhere where not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter my kingdom. And I'm wondering if that's he's referring to unrepentant sinners. Um, Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Well, um, I think that Christ is referring to religious hypocrites who believe that they will be saved in virtue of their faith alone, or the profession of faith alone. Um, And in fact, he specifies these people, and he says, well, I'm going to say away from me, I never knew you, because you didn't didn't feed the hungry or the thirsty, or give drink to the thirsty, or uh, clothe the naked, or visit the sick and the imprisoned, or shelter the homeless. So it's, there were sins of omission on their part. Um, it wasn't simply that they were unrepentant. They well, they were probably unrepentant for those sins, but they mm-hmm. they failed to do works of charity that were necessary. And on account of that, they didn't really have charity. Yeah. And so that's uh, that's why they were that's why they were not saved. Donald, thanks for your call. It is called a communion here on EWTN. We have one line open right now at eight three three two eight eight EWTN. That's eight three three. 288-3986. Let's go to Marty in Cleveland now, listening on AM 1260, The Rock. Hey there, Marty. What's on your mind today? Good afternoon. Thank you for taking my calls. A call, excuse me. Um, Dr. Anders, I, I, I'm a practicing Catholic. I just wanted to say that. But my question is this. With basically what seems to be the whole world going to war with Israel, how does that relate to what we're taught in the book of Revelation, please. Yes, thank you. In my personal judgment, it, it, it has no more relationship to the book of Revelation than does the heel of my shoe. Oh, my. Right. Um, that, that the modern nation-state of Israel does not have any particular eschatological significance. Well, it may have eschatological, eschatological significance uh, in the mind of God, but nothing that would be revealed to us in Holy Scripture. Right, um, uh, the uh, uh, the Book of Revelation does not talk about contemporary geopolitical events, um, and we cannot locate the books of uh, uh, the the teaching of Revelation by 
you know, on a historical timeline by by adverting to, you know, the newspapers or the latest Twitter feed. Now, that there are many people who try to read the Bible that way. Yes. Um, in fact, there have been people who have attempted to read the Bible that way for 2,000 years, and they have always been wrong. So every time anyone has ever said this contemporary historical event is necessarily the fulfillment of some apocalyptic prophecy from the New Testament, they have been proved wrong, right? Yeah. Lots of people have been proposed as candidates for the Antichrist. We're still here. Frederick Barbarossa, the Pope, Martin Luther. I mean, you name it. There have been lots of uh, Mikhail Gorbachev. I mean, the, the number of, what was it? Uh, there was a pamphlet published in the 80s called 88 Reasons the World Will End in 1988. Here we are. Yep. It's a lot past 1988, so that's just not the way Catholics historically have read the book of Revelation, and I think history has, chosen, has shown that it's a very unhelpful way to read the book of Revelation. Marty, thanks so much for your call. In a moment, Marita in Oklahoma, Sam in Terre Haute, Don in Omaha. Uh, one line open for you at 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Hey, our friends at Archangel Radio here in Alabama need to hear from you this week. They are airing their 2023 Fall Pledge Drive. That is tomorrow through Thursday. So if you're listening in Mobile or Daphne or Fairhope or anywhere, please support your EWTN Catholic radio station. Yeah, I think it's a good idea to stay in touch with that local station year-round. They always need to hear from you and uh, know that you're out there. Right now, let's go to uh, Marita, a first-time caller in Oklahoma, listening on the great Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting. Marita, what's on your mind today? Uh, thank you for taking my call. Uh, did the Catholics ever teach that males must be circumcised? Thank you. I appreciate the question. So the Catholic Church... Uh, the magisterium of the Catholic Church never taught that. There were individual Catholics who erroneously taught that doctrine, and they were later corrected by church authority. But w there were quite a few of them in the first generation of Catholics. So uh, after the ascension of Christ, basically until the Council of Jerusalem, it was particularly characteristic of Catholics who lived in, in Jerusalem uh, and were in association with uh, with the bishop and apostle James, um, and in fact uh, they they attempted to impose that teaching on the wider Catholic Gentile world. Uh, they went to Antioch and tried to teach that message. Uh, they went to Galatia and tried to teach that message, and and uh, and Saint Paul was there opposing them at every turn, mm. and he said, "Nope, wrong, sorry, not the way, not going to do that. Nope, 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 nope." And he wrote. Uh, he wrote a whole letter about it. The book of Galatians is written uh, specifically against the teaching that Gentiles have to perform circumcision on their on their infant male children. And, of course, as we mentioned in Acts chapter 15, we read about the Council of Jerusalem that debated the issue and, uh, and definitively rejected the position that Gentiles have to follow the Mosaic law. So there, there were some Catholics who held that. They were wrong to hold it, and the Church uh, repudiated their position. There you go. Marita, thank you so much uh, for your call today from Oklahoma. Call to Communion here on EWTN. Don is a first-time caller in Omaha watching on EWTN television today. Don, what's on your mind today, sir? Well, uh, Jesus told us there's going to be one flock and one shepherd. 
does that mean everybody before the end of the world will be Catholic under the leadership of the Pope? Um, yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So it would be wonderful if I knew everything that would happen in the future, <laughs> and I understood all of the ways in which biblical prophecy would be fulfilled. Um, I, I claim no such dignity, right? Um, I, there have clearly been Catholic interpreters that have read it that way. I don't know that you have to read it that way. Um, and um, so, you know, in St. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that at the return of Christ— Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, so, you know, how's he going to bring that about? Um, uh, in, in what sense will we be one shepherd, one flock with one shepherd? Um, that's that's really beyond my pay grade. You know, I um, it's possible that everybody will become Catholic, uh, but if so, I mean, I think that the the disposition of the Catholic Church toward non-Catholics is that. We evangelize without proselytizing. We share the truth of the faith. We give reasons to be Catholic. We try to manifest the truth, goodness, and beauty of the Catholic faith. But in no way do we try to coerce people into becoming Catholic. And, uh, and I think that you know, if our evangelistic agenda were structured around the expectation that we must ensure that every individual person become a card-carrying, visible Catholic, um, that... I really honestly think that the charity of the gospel would, would militate against that, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's the, the act of faith is necessarily a personal act that emerges deep from within an individual's conscience. And to try to coerce the conscience uh, is to ask for something other than a genuine act of faith, which means that as a Catholic, I have to leave conversion up to the Spirit of God, and my obligation ends with my charitable witness, Right and sure. and and genuine accompaniment of the person and to seek their integral good, but I really have to leave up to God the question of how grace is going to work in that soul. Don, thanks so much for your call. It is called a communion here on EWTN. If you're uh, thinking about calling us, this will be a great time. Uh, we can hopefully get you on today's program if you call right now eight three three. 288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're watching on TV today, I recommend that you shoot us an email. CTC at EWTN.com is the address. Here now, Susan in Chattanooga, listening on YouTube today. Susan, what's on your mind? Susan? Hey, Susan, are you there? Hello. Hi, I'm Susan. here. Huh? Hi, go go right ahead, please. All right, thank you. Um, my question is, um, I'm trying to live a holy life. However, I struggle so much with it, and I, I know emotions sometimes get in the way, and that's how Satan gets at you. But I try to make confession once a month, but I find myself repeating the same habitual sin. It's not a mortal sin. However, it's venial, but I heard if you do a venial sin enough, it turns into a mortal, mortal sin. So I'm so frustrated with myself, and I feel like whenever I do something wrong, God is very mad at me and very angry at me and disappointed. And I'm not saying that he abandons me, but I feel like maybe he ignores me a little or something. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but I feel so guilty and so disappointed, and and I mean it with all sincerity when I go to confession, and I do really well for like a two or three weeks, and then I find 
like when something bad happens in my life, I get upset and then I slink back into that sin maybe because I'm I'm angry too, I guess. I, I don't know. I wish I could figure it out. Yeah, thanks. I, I really appreciate the question. So let me say, first of all, that, that, that to have the idea that God is mad at you I think is very unhelpful and, and, and self-defeating. And, you know, the Catholic teaching on God is that God is immutable. God's impassable. He doesn't change. And so God doesn't have passing states of emotion the way humans do, you know, where we can be happy one minute and sad the next and angry another minute and, you know, asleep another. God doesn't, isn't like that. He, he's, he's, he's eternally love. He doesn't change at all. And so our subjective relationship to, to God can change, Right, just like my subjective relationship to my own bodily health can change, you know, I can I can be losing weight one day and gaining weight the next, and bringing the blood pressure down one day and raising it the next. But you know, health as such is a fairly constant goal in my in my life. And, and, and you know, God is not health, but you see the analogy. Yes. He's He's the constant goodness, truth, and beauty. And however much of Him I manage to assimilate into my personality is something different, but doesn't mean that He is in any way changing. And if you if you sort of relate to God as if he is a you know an, an angry schoolmaster or something, um, well that that has psychological effects that I think ultimately end up making you probably more prone to do wrong rather than otherwise because you start operating in a kind of a restricted psychological state where you're craven and fearful and then you're more likely to um, you know to to mess up honestly in the future. So I, I don't I wouldn't I would, I, I would work on that business about thinking God's mad at you. You're mad at yourself, right? And I get that. I get mad at myself all the time. And Me I, too. I have, a, I have a bad, myself, I have kind of a bad habit that I developed early in life of kind of, you know, like, bad David, bad David, <laughs> you know, <laughs> ch- chiding myself in a, in a way that ultimately doesn't help me advance in the life of charity or the virtues. Um, and uh, what I have found to be more helpful, and look, that this is this is me telling you an ideal that I don't always live by myself, is um, um, I've come to realize that, that willpower, and this is Catholic doctrine too, by the way, uh-huh. willpower is a vanishing resource, right? Mm. And so just simply forming a resolution in my mind, I ain't going to do that again, and then gritting my teeth and moving forward in the assurance that, by golly, I'm going to keep my resolution this time, guess what? Then you don't keep your resolution. Yeah. I mean, you can keep it up for a while, but you kind of exhaust your, your your willpower reserves. You get tired, you get sleepy, you get frustrated, you get emotionally under stress, and then willpower goes out the window. Mm-hmm. All right, that's really not the way to beat this. All right, um, the way to beat it is you you have to look at your rule of life, the the systems that you have in place in life, which are which are habits that you can fall back on unthinkingly that will protect you from the worst tendencies that you have. You know, that's why, that's why monasticism developed. See, the early monastics, the, the monks of the desert, and then your, your Benedictines and your Basilians and the different early religious orders, they developed because they recognized that people left to our own devices, relying upon willpower alone, weren't ever going to fully come to sanctity. So they evolved disciplines of, of communal life that were designed to help you from the outside, right? Mm. I mean, that's why, uh, you know, Benedictines get up and pray the hours every day. It's uh-huh. why they have obedience to a rule. It's why they have an abbot of their monastery. It's, it's why they have, you know, mutual correction and chapter meetings. All those things are tools that they rely on to help them do what they can't do on their own, 
right? And, and even if you're not a monastic, it's a good idea to introspect about what rule of life could I live that would enable me to form habits where this temptation becomes less of a problem for me. And to, you know, to take a kind of obvious example, I'm sure this is not your problem, but let's say somebody is an alcoholic and they're really trying to kick the habit of alcoholism. At the, at the very least, you know, if they have a habit of walking down the street with the saloon on it on their way home from work every day, find a new way to go home. Yeah. Right? You know, so that you're not exposed to that particular temptation. Now, I don't know what your issues are, so I don't know what rule of life, what habits you could form. But rather than just simply relying on willpower, um, take, a, take a page out of the monastic playbook and think about, maybe you could do this with the guidance of a spiritual director, what rule of life can I come in so that I can rely on the system rather than on my own, my own willpower to try to do this. And then, you know, a healthy relationship to the sacraments, of course, is essential. And, uh, and if you have a single confessor that you can go to habitually who's kind and encouraging, um, that can also be a tremendous help. There you go. And uh, Susan, thank you so much for your call. It is called a communion here on EWTN. We are very glad to provide something to your email inbox every week, and it's called Wings. It's EWTN's weekly e-newsletter where you can find out about EWTN radio shows, television shows, items from our own uh, religious catalog, and so much more. Sign up for Wings at EWTN.com and then click on the word subscribe. You will enjoy it. I certainly look forward to it uh, once a week. It's uh, a lot of fun. Let's go now to Sam in Terre Haute, listening on the Great Covenant Network. Sam, what's on your mind today? Hi, guys. Thanks for taking my phone call. Uh, I just wanted to say I had called into the show uh, probably about a year and a half ago mm -hmm. uh, or so. Um, I was a fallen away Catholic that was actually asking for advice on the best steps to take to return to the Church. And uh, Dr. Anders, you gave me some great advice. I really appreciate that. I've, since... Uh, taken back up the torch, so to speak, and, and, and taken up my cross and have uh, lived a sacramental life. I attend daily Mass whenever I can. Um, you know, I have an active prayer life every day. I've since sought a spiritual director, um, and actually, uh, through the uh, urging of some friends and family, have actually started to try and figure out the process or discern my uh, a possible vocation to the priesthood. And I was just, uh, one, I want to say thank you for your advice uh, a while back, and secondly, if you have any further advice on... Uh, going through this process, or just some words of encouragement, either for me or for any other young people that might be listening and possibly discerning their vocations. Wow! What a, what a call! Yeah! And what a privilege! Thank you so much. So, um, you know, you, if, you're, if you're discerning vocation, um, you know, you really need to consider at least three vocations in the Catholic Church, right? You need to consider whether you have the vocation to marriage— whether you have the vocation to religious life, mm -hmm. whether you have vocation to priesthood. And, of course, religious life and priesthood can be complementary, but they are distinct vocations. And, and so there are you know, questions about your own path to holiness and, and the kinds of things that are going to facilitate that. And you know, if the thought of, of being present to others through the ministry of the sacraments is just has really captured your imagination and 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 you think you know that it's in this mode that i could most effectively give myself in service to others and therefore uh that is what christian life is all about it's how, how what 
in what in what sphere of life can I offer myself? Paul says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. Um, is that the sphere of life in which I can do that most efficiently, the one that has has most captured my interest and my imagination? Um, then that may be, you know, maybe maybe diocesan priesthood is uh, is the path for you. Mm. Um, if you know you're had a caller earlier on the show with whom we talked about the reasons for religious vocation, uh, life in community and specifically in service within that community uh, is needful for some individuals in their own in their own path to holiness. I mean, I've talked to priests who are religious, who have told me, I couldn't have survived as a diocesan priest. I needed the support of a community around me. And it was specifically that dynamic that, that drew me. And, you know, I love my life as a priest, but but I, I really need the support of that community to do it. Well, that, that may be an indication that, that a religious vocation is on the horizon as well. Um, you know, also I would suggest that... Uh, you know, while it's a, it makes sense to start with the with the vocations office within your own diocese, um, m- lots of priests have ended up in diocesan ministries someplace other than their own their home diocese, and there can be all kinds of reasons for that, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, by all means, go to go to events, uh, go to discernment weekends. Uh, you know, take trips to the seminary, spend time with vocations directors, seminarians, and priests. Do this. Uh, in close conversation with a priest or with a religious and talk about your way of life and your past and your future and your hopes and expectations and so forth. And, of course, commit the whole thing to prayer and take your time, right? I mean, you're, you're, you know, we're, we're not just talking about, you know, picking up a degree so that you might be able to use it in a job one day. We're talking about the, the course of your whole life. Yeah. You've got time to figure it out. Sam, God bless you, my friend, and uh, we will keep you in prayer as we keep all of our listeners in prayer here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Let's go now uh, back to Texas. Here is Maria in Plano, Texas, also listening on Guadalupe Radio. Maria, what's on your mind today? Okay, I want to and in what kind of a state is my friend? He became Catholic about two years ago. And, and and now he has entered the he always entered the team of the RCAA program to volunteer. And um my question is this when we have parish reconciliation Maria, we cannot we cannot hear you very well. Could you speak up just a little bit please? Okay. When we have solemnities we invite priests for confession and my little friend who became Catholic three years ago, he told me I don't do confession. That's not for me. My things, I keep to speak with my friends and family. So what? what is with him? Uh, what is he doing? Is, yeah, is, is, thanks. I can speak to that question. I really appreciate it. So your, your friend is mistaken. Um, that's kind of like saying, well, you know, baptism isn't for me. <laughs> the Eucharist isn't for me. Confirmation isn't for me. Sorry, it's for you. Yes. Right. And, and not only did... Not only did Christ give the church the sacrament of confession, first thing when he rose from the dead, this is the first thing he gave the church. He must have thought it was important if he gave them the sacrament of confession after he rose from the dead. But not only did Christ give it, but the church actually commands it. So it's not an option. We have a canonical obligation. Just like we have a mass obligation, you have to go to mass every, every Sunday and on holy days of obligation. Um, at, the, at the bare minimum, we are required to go to confession at least once a year to confess our known mortal sins. And, uh, and any time that we're conscious of grave sin, we are obligated to go to confession prior to receiving Holy Communion. 
And, and failure to do so is not only against the law, but it's dangerous to one's soul. It's dangerous to your soul. Sure. So he is, he is not helping himself. He's hurting himself. Now, um, what, what troubles me more is that I think I heard you say, and I, I think I've read from my call screener here, that this fellow is involved uh, in, a, in a prominent way in church leadership, in church uh, in instruction, maybe in RCA candidates, something like that. And, uh, and, of course, one of the qualifications for having a prominent position as a layperson who's doing catechetical instruction in the church mm-hmm. is you have to live a, a, a faithful Catholic life in accord with the church's yeah. teaching. So he, he has confessed himself to be unqualified for the job that he has, and that might be a conversation that's worth having with the pastor and saying, you know, this, this guy's in a position of leadership, he's mm-hmm. teaching others. And yet he, he publicly says that, uh, that he's not obligated to go to confession, and I, and I know that's wrong. So yeah. um, you might even want to say something to, 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 to the priest. Uh, now, in terms of—look, this is not just an arbitrary command on the part of the Church. Right? The Church is not just being nasty and trying to get into your personal life. There are really good reasons why the Church has make it, made it obligatory to go to confession. One we already mentioned is it's a sacrament established by Christ, and all of the sacraments are needful. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have given them. But let's break down some of the reasons that is the case. Why do we need sacraments at all? Why not, why not just rely upon God to give us the grace immediately and invisibly? Well, because when we use a sacrament, that Christ's institution, we have, a, we have a tangible, visible, sensible sign that grace has been extended to us. What that does is it gives us certainty that we have the opportunity to receive grace, mm-hmm. and it gives it to us in a form, namely a symbol, that teaches. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says because the sacraments are signs, they also teach. And so it works on your psychology in a certain way, enabling you to interiorize the reality that's being presented to you, to interiorize in your, in your thought life, in your affections, in your memory, in your sensibility, because these, of course, are the seats of our human action. And I give you an example. So, you know, if I, if I consider the question, you know, do I really belong to Christ? Do I have a Christian identity? Well, I can remember concretely that I was baptized. I don't have to, I don't have to try to invent some subjective criterion to determine my Christianity. I am objectively a Christian because I was baptized. I know I belong to Christ. Yeah. That puts that question to rest. Now I, now I have to go about the business of, of, of becoming what I am, to quote Pope Gregory. Christians become what you are. Right, live yes. in accord with the dignity that was given to you in baptism. Same thing with confession. If I've gone to confession, received absolution, I don't have to imagine or suppose or hope that my sins are forgiven. They're forgiven because I have that objectively granted to me, and I can know that. And that that psychological difference makes a profound difference in one's life. Um, the uh, the act of examination of conscience prior to confession. Is, uh, is inherently sanctifying, as is the act of humility in making my sins known to another person, right? All those things are inherently sanctifying and helpful. And there's another reason you have to go to confession, and that is that the confession, while it's there for the good of your soul, it's also good, it's also, also there for the integrity and the dignity of the church. Because when you, when you sin, you, you actually alienate yourself not only from God, but from the people of God. And you need to be readmitted, as it were, uh, by uh, the uh, the judicial arm of the church, so we we refer to the confession as the tribunal. That's a legal term of of uh, of Christ's mercy, All right? And um, you know there are people who disqualify themselves from participation in the church through some sort of act, 
and they it's not up to them to decide that they're now qualified. That has to come through the judgment of someone authorized to make that judgment. That's the priest who's acting in that in that uh, in that judicial forensic role. Maria, thanks so much uh, for your call. I- interesting question here from Kate, watching us today on YouTube. Uh, Kate says, "My Protestant rapture-believing family thinks the rapture is coming because of the conflict in Gaza. What is the difference between?" Catholic Second Coming and the Rapture Theory. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So the Catholic position on the end times is that Christ will come again, that that when he comes, we will we will be caught up with him in the air, uh, that the dead in Christ, that those that are left alive will not precede the dead, but they will be re- raised from the dead, will all be judged by Christ, and 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 eternity will 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 Usher, we will ushered into eternity. So there is a future coming of Christ, a future judgment, a resurrection from the dead. And there is, even if you were, if I can use this term with a kind of a, a lowercase r, a, a rapture insofar as we're caught up into the air with Christ. But that is not at all what Protestants mean when they talk about the rapture. All right, so there is a school of Protestantism. It doesn't characterize all Protestants. That Really, it's, it's, it's key uh, position is the idea that Old Testament prophecy must be literally fulfilled in every historical detail. And so, for example, when Ezekiel uh, has a vision of a restored temple in Jerusalem from which a river will flow that will nourish trees uh, whose fruit will, will bring healing and trees that never fade, they think that, yeah, in Jerusalem there's going to be a architectural construction you know, with one heck of a fountain like flowing <laughs> out of it and some pretty awesome gardens. Mm. Um, and when Isaiah writes about camels laden with gold uh, being led into Jerusalem, the dispensationalists, that's what they're called, say, well, yep, um, better, better be getting those camel paths ready, right? And, <laughs> and, uh, and you know, and, and, um, and chests to unload all that gold. They think these are literal descriptions of the literal future. And that's one of the reasons why they're so heavily invested in the political history of the modern state of Israel, because they think that when Jesus comes back, he will rule on an actual physical throne from Jerusalem and preside over an actual Jewish temple. And so anytime anybody sneezes in the Middle East, uh, Protestant dispensationalists just go go nuts thinking that this is going to be the end of the world. The, the Catholic response is, at the very least, and there's a lot more to say, that's not the way to read the Old Testament. It's not the way the New Testament reads the Old Testament. The book of Revelation is a better guide to Ezekiel and Zechariah because it spiritualizes those prophecies and sees their fulfillment in the life of the church, not in some political nation state. Kate, thanks so much uh, for watching us today on YouTube. Hey, Dr. David Anders, we thank you so much. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday on EWTN Radio, 2 p.m. Eastern for the live show, 11 p.m. Eastern for the encore. Check us out anytime by going to EWTN.com slash radio. Until next time, I'm Tom Price. We will see you then. God bless.